0: Again, to John chapter 9, verse 18, as we pick up where we left off. Here's a fact that you might not know about John. While John plays the organ for us on Sundays, during the week he has a very difficult job, a job that requires a lot of patience, I would say the patience of a saint, John drives a school bus. <laughs> Personally, this is just me, I can't imagine driving a busload of screaming kids every day. Not just a car of kids, a busload of kids screaming every day. Now, let's ask John a question. You can't see him, but I'll tell you his answer. Have you ever thrown anyone under the bus? <laughs> he said no. He did to say no. Let me ask you folks the same question. Have you ever thrown anyone under the bus? I hope not. And the reason I ask that question of you folks is because we know that that is an idiom. It's a figure of speech. To throw someone under the bus is to distance oneself from another person because that person's become controversial. And so to avoid bringing trouble or controversy on oneself, that other person is disavowed, they're pushed aside, or as the phrase says, they're thrown under the bus. It may interest you to know that the use of this idiom is actually relatively new. It originated in England in the early 1980s and quickly made its way here to the U.S. The idiom became the go-to phrase during the 2008 presidential campaign. That was the campaign between Barack Obama and John McCain. As an example of this saying's use, a newspaper ran this headline, Barack Obama's former pastor says the president threw him under the bus. You may recall that after it was reported that a pastor named Jeremiah Wright was um, found to have made anti-American comments in his many sermons, Obama distanced himself from the pastor despite having spent many years in that church. Now, it is one thing to throw your crazy pastor under the bus, But to do that to a member of your own family, your own flesh and blood, that's a different matter entirely. And that is precisely what we will see today. As we return to the story of the man born blind, the Pharisees will summon the man's parents to appear before them and to give their testimony. And when the parents sense that answering questions about their son may harm their reputation and their standing in the community, they distance themselves from their son and throw him under the bus. Let's quickly review what has happened so far. After Jesus left the temple, he and his disciples met a man who was born blind. The disciples, reflecting the popular thought of the day, asked Jesus, Who sinned? This man or his parents? Jesus said, Neither had sinned, but instead, through this man's blindness, the works of God would be revealed. Jesus heals the man and gives him his sight. And he did it in a very unusual manner. Jesus could have simply said the word, and the man would have had his seeing restored. Instead, Jesus folded together a mixture of dirt and saliva and anointed his eyes with this clay. Jesus then sent him to the pool of Siloam, where he was told to wash. And after he washed, and for the first time in his life could see, he returned home. We deduced that he returned home because he was immediately confronted by his neighbors. His neighbors subjected the man to the first of several rounds of intense questioning, questioning of the blind man. When his neighbors saw him, they immediately asked one another, isn't this the man who sat and begged? Some thought they recognized him, and they said, yes, this is him. Others, however, said, no, he only looks like the man, but this is not the same man. That is when we heard for the very first time from the blind man himself when he called out, I am that man. Not surprisingly, the crowd of neighbors asked how this happened and who caused it to happen. And so at John 9, verse 11, we read this. He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay And anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. After they hear the report of his healing, they want to know where they can find this one who healed him. But the man answered by saying, I don't know. Well, that answer did not satisfy the crowd of neighbors. And so they brought this man and the entire matter before the Pharisees. The fact that they brought this man suggests he didn't go voluntarily. They forced him to go. He had to be brought before the Pharisees. The Pharisees then asked the man how he received his sight. And so once again, he tells the story, and he does it very succinctly. He simply says, he put clay on my eyes, I washed, now I see. Like the neighbors, the Pharisees are divided into two camps. One camp declares that Jesus is a sinner because he did a work of healing on the Sabbath. The other camp wondered how he could be a sinner considering the fact that the healing of blindness, something that had never been seen before, is clearly a sign that points to God. After the Pharisees become deadlocked in their debate, they show how divided and how desperate they were because then they turn to the blind man to ask him for his opinion. They say to him, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? To which the man replied, he is a prophet. We can be sure that the Pharisees did not agree with that assessment that Jesus is a prophet based on their previous encounters with Jesus, they had long ago decided that Jesus was not from God. They judged Jesus to be a blasphemer and absurdly claimed that his ability to heal came from Satan. Therefore, they've already decided to kill Jesus. When the crowd of neighbors brought the man before the Pharisees, we can be sure they gave their account of what they already knew. Some would have said, yes, this man was born blind, but now he sees. While the other part of the camp, of the neighbors, they would have given a different report. They would have said, well, he looks like the blind man, but this is not the same man. Well, it's not difficult for us to guess which of the two testimonies the Pharisees would have preferred. They would have thought, no, this is a case of mistaken identity. There's no miracle here. The Pharisees want evidence to discredit this, this so-called blind man and the supposed miracle. And so hoping to rule this whole story a fake, a hoax, the Pharisees will call upon the people who you would think would know this man best, his parents. Let's go, please, to verse 18, chapter 9, John 9, verse 18, as we pick up where we left off. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. The first thing I'd like to bring to your attention is that our narrator, John, now refers to this investigative panel as the Jews. In the previous passage when they were questioning the blind man this panel was referred to as the Pharisees. Now they're referred to as the Jews. It would seem that these two terms are synonymous for John our narrator. As we've heard several times already when John speaks of the Jews this is his way of referring to the religious authorities of Jerusalem, specifically those who are violently opposed to Jesus. The fact that John now refers to the Pharisees as the Jews may indicate that some of these Pharisees are also members of the 70 member Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin being the ruling council. Of all Israel. The second important detail is the word called, as in the Jews called the parents of him who had received his sight. Where the King James or New King James has called, some have they sent for. What this term tells us is that this investigative panel has subpoena power. They have the authority to compel the parents to appear before them. They've been summoned to a courtroom appearance. The reason the parents are called, they're summoned to appear before this panel, is that according to this verse, the Jews did not believe that this man had been blind and received his sight. Let's go, please, to verse 19 as the panel begins its questioning of the man's parents. Verse 19. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How, then, does he now see? They ask what is effectively three questions. The first question, is this your son? Second, was he born blind? And third, if this is your son and he was born blind how then does he now see? The first question was simple enough. Is this your son? It was also the easiest question to answer. Only the most despicable of people would fail to recognize their own child. Since this man was indeed blind, His need for assistance suggests that there's a good chance that he continued to live with his parents, even as an adult. And if he lived with his parents, it would be all the more reason they should have no problem recognizing and identifying this man as their son. In the second part of their question, the Pharisees want to know if he was born blind. This issue of whether or not he was born blind was a crucial point for the Pharisees to establish. Because if this man was not born blind, but instead, let's say, he was pretending to be blind so that rather than work, he could sit and beg, that would prove that Jesus had not healed this man. So they need to establish, was he born blind? But it is the third question that is key. The Pharisees ask, how then does he now see? This question will be the most difficult for the parents to answer. And because of the difficulty it poses to them personally, they will be desperate to avoid answering it. Now that the Pharisees have presented their questions, Let's hear the response of the parents. Let's go, please, to verse 20. His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Let's pause there. They begin their answer by confirming that this is indeed their son. They speak on the basis of what they know. We know this is our son. Considering that these Pharisees have subpoena power and they can compel the parents to appear before them, we will deduce that this panel also has the power to punish. Therefore, the parents know this is no place for speculation. No place for sharing hearsay. They will only speak about what they know. In regard to the second question, they also respond with the same certainty. We know that he was born blind. This is a fact they would have known very well. They had many years and many painful memories that constantly reminded them that their son was blind and was born blind. When he was a boy, their son could not play with the other children. As he grew, their son could not read the Torah as the other young men did. And as their neighbor's sons followed in the trades of their fathers, their son had little choice but to sit by the roadside and beg. And so, yes, they say, we know that he was born blind. Now that they have answered the first two questions and affirmed that he is their son and that he was born blind, the parents now turn their attention to the third question. It is the question about how his eyes were opened. Let's look, please, at verse 21. But, they say, By what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. A moment ago, they spoke of two things that they did know or do know. Now they speak of two things that they don't know. How is it that he now sees? We don't know. Who opened his eyes? We don't know. We see the parents are beginning to distance themselves from the entire matter. They don't want to say anything more than they have to. As the parents claim that they don't know how this happened or who caused it to happen, let's take a step back and consider how unlikely that really is. We learned in the previous passage that this blind man is not homeless. We know that he has a place to live by virtue of the fact he has neighbors. And there are two possibilities regarding his accommodations. He possibly rents a room, which he would need to maintain by the meager income he has, begging on the street. Or the more likely scenario is that he continues to live with his parents. The reason I say this is the more likely scenario is because of how easily And quickly the parents are found and summoned to appear before the Pharisees. If this man lived with his parents and he came home seeing, don't we think the parents would ask the very first thing, how did this happen? Their son was blind his whole life. Now he can see. You don't think the parents are going to say, how did this happen? Who who did this for you? Give me his name. I want to go to this this person. But suppose the man didn't live with his parents. Don't we think the very first place this man would go, or at least among the first places, would be to run home to his parents, announce to them a man called Jesus, put clay on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. How could they not know? I find the parents far from credible when they say they don't know how this happened and they don't know who caused it to happen. But suppose we give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume they, when they say we don't know, they don't mean that they don't have any information, but they don't know meaning they're not eyewitnesses. They don't know in the sense they don't have personal experiential knowledge of how he was healed, or who did it, and so they say, we don't know. We will suppose that is possible, but what they say next reveals that they are not only attempting to distance themselves from the healing itself, they are attempting to distance themselves from their own son. Let's return to the end of 21 and hear what the parents have to say next. After they claim they don't know how he was healed or who healed him, they go on to say, he is of age. He's old enough. Ask him. He will speak for himself. It appears the parents want no part of this third question that requires that they speak about who healed their son. They want to avoid any more questions on this matter. And so they suggest that if the Pharisees have any more questions about the man who's responsible for healing their son, they need to ask their son. We will notice there's a flurry of comparative pronouns. We versus he. How he now sees, we don't know. Who opened his eyes? We don't know. He is of age, ask him. He's old enough, talk to him. He can speak for himself. You see the us and versus, versus him? It sounds like they're throwing him under the bus. Sounds that way to me. Or if you purry, they prefer they're, they're throwing him under the, the wagon or the donkey, whatever. I don't want to be too anachronistic, right? There was no buses, obviously. But you get the point. They're distancing themselves from the controversial figure who is right now their son. And ultimately, they're distancing themselves from Jesus. They're throwing their son under the bus. They don't want to be associated with their son, and they don't want to be associated with what has happened. For those who are parents here, let me ask you to put yourselves in the shoes of these parents. Some of you have children who have been struck with serious illnesses. Some of those illnesses regarding your children were life-threatening. If Jesus miraculously healed your child, let's say you had a blind child, and suddenly that child could see because of the work of Jesus, wouldn't you stand on the rooftop of your house and give God praise and thank Jesus for what he's done? Of course you would. Of course you would. But not these parents. Why? Well, in the next verse, John explains why. They feared for themselves. Let's go on, please, to verse 22. As John now inserts an editorial comment, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he, Jesus, was the Christ, He would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. This editorial comment gives us a behind-the-scenes look about two things. First, we're told why the parents will not speak freely. They feared the Jews. And secondly, we learn that in Jerusalem, there is a general atmosphere of fear that was intentionally created by the Pharisees. The Pharisees have made it clear that there will be a heavy price to pay for anyone who believes in this Jesus. We know that the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin are already plotting to kill Jesus, and this desire to have Jesus dead, that was not a secret. Let's recall why Jesus is currently in Jerusalem. He came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the, um, the year-end Feast of a Harvest. And when he arrived, he went to the temple to teach. And while he was in the temple, we learned about the murderous plotting of the religious authorities had already become public knowledge. Again, the murderous plot of the authorities had already become public knowledge, We learn that in chapter 7, verse 25, because as Jesus was healing, some of the locals, the people who live in Jerusalem, they whispered to one another, isn't this the one they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. And so once again, the people of Jerusalem realize that as Jesus is going through Jerusalem, teaching and healing the people, the people of Jerusalem realize that this Jesus is a marked man, that there's already a plot to kill him. What we learn in this verse, verse 22, is that the religious authorities are not only plotting to kill Jesus, they have launched a psychological campaign of fear to threaten anyone who might dare acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ the Pharisees, and presumably the Sanhedrin, have put in place a plan of fear and coercion to prevent people from believing in Jesus. As John explains, the reason the blind man's parents were fearful and claimed they don't know anything about this healing is because the Jews had already agreed That if anyone confessed that Jesus is the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. The parents of the blind man realized they're in danger. If they testify that their son was given sight by Jesus, that would be the equivalent of confessing that Jesus is the Christ. The parents would have known, everyone there would have known, the prophecies of Isaiah And one of the definitive signs that the Messiah had come, that Isaiah predicted, is that the Messiah would be able to give sight to the blind. And so if they said, yes, this Jesus gave sight to our son, that would have been the equivalent of saying, yes, this Jesus is the Christ. And so the parents, fearing the Pharisees, do not stand with their son. They throw him under the bus rather than say only the Messiah could give sight to our blind son, what did they say instead? He's old enough. Ask him. He can speak for himself. Let's notice the phrase put out, as in whoever confessed Christ would be put out of the synagogue. This describes what we know today as excommunication. It is the removal of an offending individual or, or group from a larger body. Let's think back for a moment to our high school days. For some of us, I realize that's a long, that's a long time, but let's, let's think back to our high school days. In high school, for those who had severely broken the rules, none of us, but for those who had severely broken the rules, there were two types of punishment. The first type of punishment was suspension, right? The offender would be temporarily excluded from attending school for some matter of days or weeks. The second type of punishment that was reserved for the most serious of offenders, such people were expelled. Remember that, expelled. They were put out of the school permanently. In the Jewish synagogue, there were two kinds of excommunication, temporary and permanent. During, depending on the infraction, a member of the synagogue could be put out temporarily for 30 days. The offender could be reinstated if after that amount of time, the person confessed that they were a sinner or an error regarding their views. They could be reinstated if they confessed. The second type of excommunication, that was permanent. This meant being put out of the synagogue with no path to return. To understand the severity of this threat of being put out of the synagogue, we need to bear in mind that in first century Judaism, every aspect of life revolved around the synagogue. The synagogue was not only the center of one's religious life. The synagogue was the center of all social life and even financial life. Let's suppose a shopkeeper declared his belief that Jesus is the Christ. If he were put out of the synagogue the members of his community would no longer shop at his store. He would be financially ruined. His wife and his children would be shunned by their former friends, because to associate with someone who had been put out of the synagogue would risk being targeted by the same authorities. Guilt by association. Today there is something very similar to what is being described here. And today in our country, this is referred to as cancel culture. And I submit that the coercion that comes from the advocates of cancel culture is a serious threat to our entire society. And the reason I say that is because the people who wield the power of cancel culture are typically the most morally bankrupt members of our society. For example, and I could list hundreds of examples. One example, these cancel culture advocates are the people who insist that elementary school children should be taught that they are able to change their own gender. They are able to choose their own gender. And if anyone should suggest that this is inappropriate to teach fourth graders that you can change your gender, if we say that that's inappropriate, if we say that's a form of indoctrination rather than education, if we suggest that potentially is child abuse and maybe that's grooming rather than teaching, well, you're labeled as transphobic. You're a bigot, and you need to be canceled. Activists will contact your employer and demand that you be fired or that you be put out of business. If someone does not say the right things or even think the right things, as are determined by a fallen secular culture, Those who have appointed themselves as the authority of what is right will seek to silence and ruin anyone who does not agree with their fallenness. This type of coercion is increasing in scope and in severity. It is now the case that governments are employing this same kind of ruinous coercion that comes with the cancel culture mindset. We saw it in Canada, where truckers opposed government-mandated vaccines. And when the truckers protested, the government responded by threatening to revoke their driver's license, seize their trucks, and freeze their bank accounts. If that is not excommunication, to be thrown out of society, I don't know what is. That is cancel culture at its worst. But there is another case that I want to bring to your attention. While the case in Canada is close to us geographically, there is a case that is even closer to us spiritually. It concerns threats that have been made by the government of Finland against a member of their own parliament. This member of parliament, her name is Peve Räsänen, member of the Finnish parliament, Peve Räsänen. She's also a member of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Finland. A few years ago in 2019, she used her social media account to voice her opposition to her church's support and sponsorship of a gay pride event. As a result of her posting that public opposition, she was required to appear in a courtroom last week. She is under trial and she faces two years in prison. And what is the charge against her? Well, it is what is known in our country as hate speech. Here's what prosecutors in Finland consider hate speech. She posted on Twitter and on Instagram a photograph that she took out of her Bible and posted it on the internet. The photograph was of Romans chapter 1, a passage of scripture that identifies homosexuality as a sin. Apparently, the words of scripture are now hate speech. The words of scripture which have shaped and guided Western civilization for 2,000 years can no longer be tolerated in the public square. Those who speak words of scripture, who dare to refer to them, even post a picture of them, are now deemed deserving of imprisonment. According to news reports, the prosecutor in this Finland case compared the Bible to Hitler's Mein Kampf. Outside the courtroom, Rassinen, remember, she's a member of the parliament for the country of Finland, she was quoted as saying this, I would never have believed that this could happen in Finland because we are a democracy with freedom of speech and freedom of religion in our Constitution, the reason I bring this case to your attention is because this kind of persecution—persecution—is coming here, and it's already arrived. What Pavey Rassinen is discovering is that the world's governments, including our own, are increasingly under the control of what I would describe as secular Pharisees. A secular Pharisee is someone who pretends to have the moral high ground. And as they dictate what they say is right, they do not look to the word of God. Instead, they demand that others live according to what is right in their eyes. And as these secular Pharisees demand that others live according to their morally bankrupt ways, their demands come with coercion, imprisonment, and even violence. Consider Antifa last summer. The secular world is threatened by the Christian. They consider us their enemy. And what does Jesus tell us to do in regard to our enemy? He tells us to love our enemy. And how do we love our enemy By proclaiming the truth, we will not be thrown under the bus, nor will we throw our brothers and sisters under the bus. We will stand and stand together, and we will stand for the truth because it is God's truth. And that truth includes this that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your truth. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your truth. Holy Spirit, we thank you for putting the the spirit of truth into our hearts that we can know and recognize what is true and false, and we see so much falsehood in our world. It is why every day we must stand firm and proclaim the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.